Investor returns across private credit markets have remained remarkably steady in recent years, even amid a global pandemic and more recently in the face of high inflation and rising rates. But are we about to see a watershed moment in this asset class that creates clear winners and losers? You've got over 80% of the managers out there have never experienced a cycle before. They don't have the playbook. I'm not saying they're not skilled and they aren't sharp investors, but they're coming from different asset classes. They're coming from capital markets. They're coming from the large lending market. You get your hands dirty working with these companies. I think this asset class is going to become a permanent allocation within uh, institutional investors' portfolios. And the amount of capital that flows in this asset class is going to be enormous. So I, I think this is a watershed moment for the asset class. And I think for some managers, it's not going to be a lot of fun. That was Ian Fowler, co-head of global private finance at Barings. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Barings. I'm your host, Greg Campion. Coming up on today's show, co-heads of global private finance, Ian Fowler and Adam Wheeler, explain why they see the potential for continued strong growth in the private credit asset class, but how structural trends unfolding may result in clear winners and losers among private credit managers. All right, Ian Fowler and Adam Wheeler, welcome to the podcast. Very excited to have both of you guys here, excited to uh, dive into private credit. Um, it's been a little while since I've had both of you guys on the podcast, and uh, there's uh, no shortage of things to talk about. So I'd love to, you know, in this conversation, I'd love to hear about your latest thoughts on the market. And also, I think given the kind of, you know, tenured careers that both of you have had in this space, I'd love to hear you put today's markets uh, into kind of long-term perspective. So with that quick intro, uh, Adam, I might turn it over to you and just ask you to kind of set the stage for us a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, and just talk to us a little bit about the overall backdrop you're seeing in private credit markets today and you know how the asset class is really positioned against an economic picture that's pretty uncertain. We don't know if it's a slowdown, but we do know that we still got inflation, et cetera. So talk, talk to me about uh, the, the overall landscape you're seeing out there today. Yeah, sure, Greg. I mean, I think we've seen a lot happen in the direct lending market and in, in all um, markets for the last six to nine months. Um, maybe just a little bit of background and then we can talk about what we're seeing. I mean, I think we've seen, you know, through our portfolio, I mean, we we now have exposure to well over 250 names in our portfolio, um, and we've certainly seen the impact of sort of the economic backdrop on on those portfolios. I think over the last six months, you know, we've seen as the supply chain issues, some wage inflation flow through into the portfolio. But what we have also seen is companies being able to pass on price increases to their customers. So you know that suggests that demand has remained fairly robust across the across the book, which which is somewhat surprising. You would have expected sort of the economic backdrop to start to have an impact. Uh, I think through Q4, you know, companies have tried to pass on further price increases as we've seen costs continue to increase. Now, I think we're going to see whether companies can hang on to those price increases uh, in Q1 and Q2 this year. So I think Q1 and Q2 are going to be some interesting sort of reporting information from companies that we're lending to. So I think your question around sort of the backdrop, I mean, you know, I'm sure we'll talk more about interest rates, uh, sort of early days, I think, in the impact on that on the portfolio. Uh, but 
but I think you know the the portfolio we have is is really well positioned um, as we as we go through the last uh, six months and into this year. Yeah, yeah. And Ian, anything you'd add to that? Uh, just more specific to the North American market. Well, I I think uh, and and Greg, great to be with you after uh, all this uh, all this time. And by tenured, I just want to make sure you're you're speaking regarding experience and not age just to, to be <laughs> absolutely clear. seasoned uh, tenured yeah, whatever word you want exactly. to use unfortunately there's a high correlation between those yeah two no things. that's true <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> but we have we have seen a lot and i think that's going to bode well uh for for us as a platform in terms of you know the playbook and and uh, working through a conventional recession but i think i think adam did a great job in terms of talking about the companies and and really looking at it from a micro perspective and i would say uh in north america we mirror that uh, quite a lot um adam referenced 250 accounts uh, portfolio accounts uh outside of north america if we add north america we're over 550 uh portfolio companies so we see a lot i'm just going to spend a second just taking it up a level and talk about from a asset level perspective more macro and i i think the key here is that this asset class is resilient and what's attractive now in this market is because it's floating rates it's obviously a riskier environment but investors are getting paid for that uh risk with higher uh, total yields we now have yields for senior debt between 10 and 11 percent uh all in, in in north america uh, we have higher fees, we have lower leverage, and we have enhanced structural protection. So at, at the end of the day, the market, I think, is adjusting to the environment that we're dealing with now. And as long as you have good companies with good sponsors and a lender that's in alignment, you know, the company's going to make it through a cycle. And if you look at where we are today versus the great financial crisis, you know, this asset class is, in some respects, better off with a lower uh, loan to value of 40 to 50% versus 60 to 70% uh, going into the last recession. Better interest coverage, albeit it is definitely getting compressed, as Adam said, based on inflationary pressures and, and uh, rate hikes, uh, but still better going in. And there's just more liquidity in this asset class today than there was you know, pre-financial crisis with asset managers having a lot of capital versus the landscape uh, back in 07, 08 was really FinCo's and insurance companies with limited uh, balance sheet capital. So I think the key is, and Adam kind of said it, it's, you know, you've, you've already baked your portfolio. You're going to go into this environment. And I think as long as you've constructed, uh, you know, attractive portfolio with a lot of diversification, I think it's, you're going to be fine. I think there's still you know, even so much uncertainty around what the macro picture that we're going to be facing in the months and years ahead really is. I mean, it seems like every piece of economic data that comes out kind of conflicts with the last. And there's a lot of question marks about whether or not we are actually headed into an economic slowdown or, or what the picture is. But, um, you know, one of the things that Adam mentioned up front is that companies are able or have been able to raise prices. Um, and that's obviously helped the the fundamental picture. Um, curious, Ian, as you're, you know, looking at the health of the, you know, middle market company universe and the the companies that you all uh, lend to, um, do you think higher rates are starting to bite at this point? Are you seeing that? Do you see any trouble with any of these companies in terms of satisfying their debt obligations or are they still in pretty good shape? 
Well, I, I think we're in a transitory period right now, um, quite frankly. I, I mean, as Adam said, when you look, if you have good companies that have a reason to exist, they've been able to pass through price increases, right? Um, and and so, you know, managers should have good portfolios right now. I mean, if you don't, you're in big trouble, right? Because if you, if you haven't been able to pass through price increases uh, up until now, uh, your portfolio is going to be a, a disaster going through a, a recession. So I, I think on the inflationary side, I think most companies were able to, to pass through price increases. I, I think given the uh, cadence of the uh, base rate increases, you know, at a certain level, it really does start to bite into to margins. And, and so I think we're seeing uh, sort of the tip of the iceberg on – you know, some margin compression due to rate hikes. I don't think you'll see the full effect of that until the second and third quarter financials. Um, but again, I think companies are working on ways to reduce expenses and improve margins in addition to trying to put through more price increases. And we have seen some sponsors from a, from a portfolio perspective with their portfolio accounts uh, incorporate fixed rates and and swap uh, floating rates uh, to to sort of hedge their position. So again, I I think we're probably going to see some bumpy roads ahead. Um, but again, as long as you have constructed, I think a, a portfolio of good companies, and like I said, as long as everyone's working together, you know, I think you'll be in a position to to make it through to the other side. Adam, how about how about across the uh, ocean in Europe? Uh, same picture there, and also I know that you know defaults have been pretty modest uh, over the past several years in the asset class. Curious if you know you start to see that change in the coming years. Yeah, I think as Ian said, it all depends on the quality of the companies you're lending to, and also the capital structures that you put in place. So if you think back to you know eighteen months ago, six and a half. Seven times leverage was not uncommon in this asset class. A lot of those capital structures were predicated on very, very low base rates. So I think if you have created a portfolio of highly leveraged exposure, you are going to be in in some trouble as base rates increase. So I think I think the first thing is you know high quality companies, conservative capital structures, and if you've done that well, you should be in a good position to see yourself through the next sort of six to 12 months. Um, your question about defaults, yes, we've seen almost zero. Well, there have been, people have lost money in this asset class, uh, but it's been, you know, th- there have not been very many, many situations where, where things have gone wrong. Mm-hmm. I think that will change. Um, and I think you will see um, a hell of a lot of covenant resets over the next you know, six months as base rates continue to rise and flow through into interest payments. So I think that's the first thing you're going to see. And you're going to see a lot of sponsors coming to their lenders asking to pick some of that interest because the increase in the interest cost is well above what people expected to pay. So you're going to see interest cover, debt service coverage really, really tight. So I think while you will see a lot of covenant resets, I don't know if that's going to translate into a lot of losses, uh, but Time will tell how how deep the the downturn the downturn will be. 
Let's switch gears and talk a little bit about the the competitive landscape uh, that you're seeing out there, both among other managers and also other players like banks. So uh, it'd be really interesting to hear you talk about the competitive dynamics that are impacting pricing, terms, structures, et cetera. So maybe, Ian, it'd be interesting to get your take on that first. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, there's a number of things going on, which is interesting. You know, first, uh, really no banks active in North America, and it's been that way for t- over 20 years. Um, obviously, there's been a lot of new lenders that have come into the market. And quite frankly, I'd say probably 80 plus percent of the direct lending landscape are new platforms that have never survived or experienced a conventional recession. So I, I think we're going to see some uh, challenges there. We definitely saw some challenges during COVID. But COVID was just a speed bump. And, you know, the the platforms that had to get rescue financing or defaulted on their revolver draws or had to raise dilutive equity to shore up the balance sheet, I mean, they were basically able to uh, get through, you know, that dislocation because it was short in duration. But conventional recession of, you know, six months to 18 months, that's a, that's a different story. But what I will say from a competitive perspective, it's really a tale of two cities. Um, mature lenders that have a, a large book of portfolio companies can be very cautious in a market like this in terms of new M&A activity because there's not a lot of new M&A activity. I will say that we're a seasonal business and it's never all that busy in the beginning of the year. January was very quiet. Um, but I think the key thing is so far this year, quality of deals coming to market have not been that great. And quite frankly, if you had a property and you're in this period where with today's higher rates, everyone's trying to figure out or discover what the true valuation of a business is, and there's not enough data to really understand where valuations are going. So why would you bring a a property to market right now. So we're all being cautious in terms of new deals, but because we're mature businesses with large portfolios, there's a lot of activity within those uh, portfolio companies in terms of add-on acquisitions that allows us to put more capital out the door and support our portfolio companies, ultimately making them bigger, better, more diversified credits. So it's, it's a great way for us to put money out the door. Makes sense for the sponsor because the purchase price multiples are less than what they paid for the original platform. So they're actually reducing their cost basis. And that's a great way to hedge their bets in case valuations uh, do drop. Um, and, and so for, for us in that situation, it's great. If I were a new lender today trying to start uh, off and, and build a book of business in this environment, I mean, I wouldn't be able to sleep. I mean, that's that's a really tough spot to be in because uh, there's just so much risk. And also, if you're a direct lender with a non-sponsor strategy, trying to find new M&A activity in this market, again, highly risky. So for us, putting new dollars out the door in companies we know well and understand is very attractive and also less competitive, right? Because these are accounts that are in our portfolio. So... It really is a tale of two cities. Um, I will say that there does seem to be a, uh, some limited capital out there also in terms of uh, hold sizes, and that's impacting the market. Um, but 
if you can find good opportunities in your portfolio, it's very attractive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Adam, does that competitive landscape that Ian just described, does that sort of match up to what you're seeing on the ground in Europe as well? Yeah, I think it's pretty consistent. I mean, to build on a couple of things that Ian said, I think, um, you know, we've seen the broadly syndicated loan market and high yield market shot, effectively shot for some time. So a lot of larger cap borrowers that have traditionally gone down that path to source debt have gone to the private markets. And I think that has sucked a lot of capital out of the direct lending space. Um, so I think that's definitely the case in, in Europe and, you know, Ian um, alluded to that in, in North America as well. So I think the impact of that has been that, you know, the competitive tension to deploy capital is less than it was. And combining that with higher base rates, we've seen um, leverage levels come down significantly. We've seen pricing, so spreads, not just total interest payments, but spreads widen out significantly as well. While interest rates are, are higher, the economic outlook is, how can we put it, slightly uncertain. The Where we can find flow, and for those that, that are sourcing flow, so as Ian said, from our existing book of borrowers and for the, the higher quality transactions that we're seeing, we think the relative value that we're getting and the absolute returns we're get, getting today is actually pretty attractive. Some of the highest absolute returns that that I think we've seen in this asset class for a very long time. Hmm. How about uh, in, in Asia-Pac, are the competitive dynamics similar or just given the structural differences in that market, it, is it pretty yeah, different? It, it's a very different, very different market. It, it is a bank-dominated market. It's very different in sort of the more developed, let's say, Australia and New Zealand than it is in the rest of Asia. Um, there is a lot of bank liquidity um, in Asia to put capital into this space. We're starting to see institutional lenders appear in this space in Asia-Pac. It's still relatively nascent, uh, particularly relative to what you see in North America, but it is starting to develop. Um, you know, we've been doing it for quite some time in Asia-Pac, and, and now we're seeing some of the people we compete with in Europe or North America starting to move into those markets in which we've been operating for a while. So it's growing and developing, but banks are still a large part of the landscape. Got it, got it. So, Adam, I guess, you know, Ian mentioned uh, or used the, the the terminology, a tale of two cities uh, earlier. So let's talk a little bit about the kind of difference between manager performance. My impression is that through the, the COVID period, at least, there wasn't a tremendous amount of dispersion between manager performance. And I'm sure you guys can speak to the different reasons behind that. But let's say we are headed into an economic slowdown, or at the very least, we know we're coming on a period where, you know, rates have been going up for uh, about a year now, and that's, you know, starting to bite in different places. But talk to me a little bit about this idea of kind of differentiation between managers, and if we will see more dispersion in the coming months and years? And if so, what might drive that? Yeah, I do think there is going to be a separation of performance between managers over the next sort of 18 months. It'll take time for it to play out, but it goes back to what we're talking about before. Did you position yourself in the right assets? So were you lending into companies that you think are resilient through a cycle? Or were you focusing on more sort of cyclical businesses and deploying capital because into opportunities that were you know, less resilient in nature, had less ability to generate consistent cash flow. That comes down to your ability to source assets. 
So if you're not an established player with good networks, you're going to see less lower quality deal flow and you do what you see in this asset class. So you're going to be loading up on things that are probably more cyclical. And then if you overlay that with like how aggressive have you been in your capital structures? So, you know, as we were saying before, like six and a half, seven times deal for a cyclical business is really going to struggle. And so I think, you know, we're hearing lots of stories in the marketplace that there are numerous covenant resets happening now for, for businesses um, here in Europe uh, because, you know, it was predicated on a zero base rate lasting in perpetuity. That's certainly not the case now. Um, so people are resetting covenants. So that's an early sign that people are going to have problems. So I think it takes a long time for things to play out in this asset class, but I think it will definitely appear the longer and deeper this downturn is, um, the more likely you're going to see it. As Ian said right at the beginning, we're not going to start to see this until the back half of the year. Yeah. yeah. At the earliest. Okay. So lending to cyclical businesses at high leverage levels, that's obviously a you know potentially worrying sign for future performance. Um, what else is top of that list? I mean, I think about size of platform. I mean, Ian mentioned earlier, you know, I wouldn't want to be an upstart uh, in this space right now. I mean, is the size of platforms, does that play a big role, do you think, going forward? Well, I think it goes back to incumbency. So if you're the incumbent lender, you naturally see a lot of flow. And that's the companies we're already lending to. But what we also want to be is continue to lend to companies that we like when they change hands. So when they go from one private equity owner to another, and we've successfully done that for a, for a long period of time. So incumbency and scale today, I think are the two most important things you have in a direct lending platform. And that incumbency and scale helps you source more assets and allows you to be more selective about the companies you lend to. So it's not the sort of asset class you could just go and buy stuff on an exchange. It's all about the quality and your ability to source assets is the way you deploy capital in a sensible way. Um, so it, if you're really aggressive and you're starting from a low base, because you've got to be, um, that's not a great place to be. Yeah, yeah. And another way that managers differentiate themselves is through fee structures. And that's something that probably doesn't get discussed as much in forums like this one, but it's obviously a major component of, you know, how our clients and prospective clients are assessing managers. So I'd be curious how you're thinking about fee structures in general today and kind of the idea of creating alignment between LPs and managers. Yeah. So there's a couple of things to think about there. There's obviously... I mean, let's just talk about fee structure uh, specifically. Uh, you know, there's some managers out there in today's market that, as part of their uh, fee structure, they're basically splitting the upfront uh, commitment fees or OID in, in the transactions. And I think the issue with with that split of fees is that um, you're not really getting paid on performance; you're getting paid on deployment. And so. You know, as a manager, if your strategy is purely focused on filling up your vehicles as quickly as possible, then deployment becomes the the main impetus um, and focus of that vehicle. Because what's happening is, with the split in fees, the the manager will charge a lower fee on AUM to to compensate for that, which. Again, I think you should have fee structures where there's, you know, performance fees baked into the into the model, and in that way you are in alignment. I, I think that the split of fees together with just uh, payment on uh, a lower fee cost on AUM 
doesn't really create an alignment of interest between uh, the investor and the direct lender. So I, I think that's something that you know we'll see how that plays out. Maybe the market does move to that um, as a strategy going forward. But I think that's definitely an issue in in today's market. I also think that you know as I spoke about filling up vehicles, I think it's important to understand that you know as Adam said, asset selection is critical, underwriting is critical. Account management is critical, but I would add portfolio construction is equally important. And and the one thing that we've done on, on a global basis is we've really tried to enhance diversification within our portfolios. And I think we typically have, whether it's in Europe or, or North America, twice as many issuers than our competitors. So we're not just focused on filling up the vehicle and moving on to the next vehicle. We're actually focused on getting as much diversification as we can because you can't make up losses in this mm. asset class like private equity. And so to the extent you can maximize or optimize diversification, you know, if, a, if a company or two get into some issues or, or troubles and you have some, you know, potentially some uh, losses associated with that, you're still going to generate the targeted returns that you promised in investors. So I think, you know, that isn't a fee structure per se concept, but it has to do with alignment of interests. And, you know, we are principal investors. We're investing our own capital. So we just think about it differently. Adam, anything you'd add on that point? Yeah, I think it's kind of hit it well. I, I, you know, diversification is incredibly important. You can't make up for losses. The way you do well in this asset class is avoiding capital loss. Um, and what you're trying to do is build a well-diversified portfolio where you effectively, you know, clip a ticket on a number of investments over time and pay a, a, a consistent return through a cycle to the investor base. If you lose money on a couple of assets in a concentrated portfolio, you, you're kind of done. Um, so we very much focus on on diversification, asset quality. Hmm. Ian, we talked a little bit about, you know, what may drive dispersion between managers uh, as we go through this cycle. So just thinking about that, uh, I'm curious if we do see that. So if we do see a real dispersion between, you know, the best performing managers, the worst performing managers, et cetera. What are some implications of that? Because that would be a pretty different environment we'd be moving into. Uh, it makes sense to me why we may very well be moving into it. But, w- but what are some of the big implications of that? Well, having, having been through this cycle before, I mean, I think, uh, or, or having been through an environment like this before and through cycles in the past, um, you know, I started off our conversation today talking about the resiliency of the asset class. Um, it's not going away. It's a critical component of the U.S. economy, the growth engine, employs over a third of the U.S. labor force. But what can change is the landscape of capital providers. And that has happened, you know, several times through cycles. And as I mentioned earlier, you've got over 80% of the managers out there have never experienced a cycle before. They don't have the playbook. I'm not saying they're not skilled and, and, and they aren't, uh, you know, sharp investors, but they're coming from different asset classes. They're coming from capital markets. They're coming from the large uh, lending market. You know, they've never had to work out a portfolio of middle market loans. I mean, you get your hands dirty working with these these companies. It's it's very labor intensive, and so you need the resources, you need the capital, 
You need the capital to support the liquidity of your portfolio going through a cycle. It's just not about doing new deals. And, you know, as Adam said, you know, some of the managers that have moved up market have really committed huge dollars on those mega deals. You know, and the question is, do they have enough capital to support their portfolio going through a cycle? And those companies being large companies are going to need a lot of capital. It's not a 10 or $20 million fix. So I, I think as you look at a dislocation, and quite frankly, I think we need a reset, to be honest. And so I think we'll see consolidation. You know, we're already hearing some managers are, are having some margin calls by their leverage lenders. So I think that's the, uh, the beginning sign of some volatility in the market as it relates to the managers, not the asset class. And, and so I do expect to see some consolidation. I do expect to see some opportunities where hopefully we can buy some performing assets at a discount. Uh, and certainly it should be an opportunity where we can attract some new talent. Uh, from other platforms where those platforms are having issues. I don't, I don't think the, the landscape's going to change from asset management. I think this is you know, the, the perfect vehicle for institutional investors to access uh, this asset class. And what I do see happening is when investors that you know, have been investing in this asset class for the last 10 years and less see the performance of the underlying asset class and how attractive it is, I think this asset class is going to become a permanent uh, allocation within uh, institutional investors' portfolios, and the amount of capital that flows in this asset class is going to be enormous. So I, I think this is a watershed moment for the asset class, and I think for some managers, it's not going to be a lot of fun. Hmm. Adam, for the, um, for the landscape in Europe and APAC, do you expect to see consolidation there as well? Oh, I completely agree with Dean. I think it's going to happen everywhere. And when we talk about consolidation, I think what's going to happen is people just can't raise capital and they're going to wither. Mm -hmm. And those managers that are successful are continue are going to raise more and more capital. So I think you'll see you know, LPs allocating more capital, but to fewer managers. Mm -hmm. You're already starting to see that happen in the asset class. Uh, and I think that trend is going to continue. I mean, you could just look at all the investor surveys that have been done over the last couple of years in terms of where allocations are going for pension funds and other institutional investors, I think the latest one I saw is that allocation is going to double for all the reasons that, that Ian outlined. I mean, when we talk to investors, the, the consistent piece of feedback is they are surprised at the consistency of the performance of, of the portfolios we've created. And I think that just builds confidence in the investor base to keep coming back into the asset class. And it is absolutely going to become a permanent allocation. And therefore, when that happens, that just means it's going to be more scale in the asset class. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's just going to keep, I think there is a structural trend that has been established that is going to continue. And, and actually, I think, uh, as Adam said, it will come from investors, you know, allocating to the managers that are performing. It will also come from the leverage providers to the um, Good point. direct lenders, because that capital is very finite. And, and so they're also going to select very carefully who they give uh, capital to. And I think that will be a, another force that, as Adam said, will create this consolidation where uh, those that are performing, those that are sustainable platforms are going to attract more capital and continue to grow. And the others are just going to wither and die. Hmm. 
That'll be pretty fascinating to watch uh, in the years ahead. So, so uh, really interesting to hear your take around just the continued strong demand or expected continued strong demand for the asset class, generally speaking, but some of the shifting dynamics around what the competitive landscape could look like and consolidation of managers, et cetera. I guess I'm curious, Adam, as you start to you know prepare for this environment, or as we talked about earlier, prepare for a kind of potential economic slowdown that may or may not be ahead. Are you doing anything different in the day-to-day business? So I guess what I'm asking is, are you changing your lending standards at all or how you're constructing portfolios based on your expectations that, you know, maybe a tougher economy uh, lies ahead? Yeah, fair question. Look, I mean, our investment philosophy has not changed. I mean, we've been investing in this asset, asset class for a long time. We take the view that we are just going to invest in companies through a cycle. Um, so we've always taken the view that we're going to be deploying money or at least have a portfolio and have to manage a portfolio in an economic downturn. So the way we go about it has not changed. The type of companies we're looking to lend to has not changed. Clearly, we are cognizant of the economic backdrop, and that and and that means that there's just less leverage going into transactions because you want to see the same amount of free cash flow servicing that debt. So that's really the the key driver is is the capital structures have changed given the the sort of macro backdrop, but the type of companies we lend to has, has not changed. Um, and I think that's important, one, from an investor's perspective that we're consistent, but also from our interactions with our private equity counterparts that we're consistent with them so we build strong relationships and see quite quality flow. Um, so I think that's just positive reinforcement in, in both directions in terms of deployment and managing portfolio and raising capital. Um, clearly things change around the edges, but it's the same sort of companies. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. I mean, I know that your standards have always been, uh, to be, you know, somewhat more conservative, very disciplined in your lending standards, uh, avoiding, you know, highly cyclical businesses, et cetera. So it seems like this is the type of environment that's, you know, that you really see that, uh, kind of benefit of that approach kind of coming through. So it's, it makes sense that that you're not changing the way that you invest. One thing, I guess, that has changed, uh, Ian, in the asset class in recent years is uh, the continued increase of ESG and incorporating things like ESG ratchets um, into the structure of loans that are being made. So I'm curious today, maybe specific to North America to start, um, where we are with uh, integrating some of these ESG mechanisms mechanisms into loan structures. Um, I know also that there's been some skepticism, frankly, about how meaningful some of these features actually are um, in terms of making real-world impacts. Um, so be curious to kind of hear your latest on uh, how you and the team are integrating all these and, and where you think it goes uh, from here. Sure. Before before we go there, just to, to add on to what Adam said, and you know, again, it goes back to our approach and our philosophy of Boring is beautiful, um, and and that's how we you know try to you know start and when we select companies and and build these diversified portfolios that have low volatility. But I think one of the things we are doing also globally is uh, looking at our portfolios and stress testing our portfolios, uh, both from a, you know continued base rate increase and and looking at the portfolio and its performance and ability to service debt. Um, our EBITDA cushions and our loan-to-value cushions. So, 
you know, again, as Adam said, you know, we're starting in a, in a good position, um, but we're being very proactive in terms of, you know, looking at the, the portfolio and stress testing it. And I think you have to sort of assume the worst and, and hope for the best in terms of, you know, whatever this uh, potential recession might be if it does hit us. Now, regarding ESG, you know, that's, you know, a theme that we incorporated uh, at least seven or eight years ago. Uh, as as a platform and really built a process around ESG separate from the investment team in terms of having individuals review transactions before uh, they came to the investment committee. So we, we've been a, pr- a proponent of ESG for quite a while. It's obviously more of a focus in some markets than others. Um, and I'll let Adam talk about outside North America. I think in North America, it's still somewhat early days uh, in terms of uh, it being a uh, concept that everyone in the market is supportive of. Um, but I, I think you know it's it's important to know that we don't do deals just because they're ESG deals. I mean, we are we're bottom up uh, investors. Uh, we incorporate. Uh, an ESG filter on everything we do, but we're focused on return and uh, and generating the returns and low volatility that we've promised investors. You know, in North America, we we had the first uh, ratcheted deal uh, that we offered uh, discounts. I I think uh, to your question though, you know, regarding K- uh, KPIs and and just measuring uh, the the impact of uh, the ESG uh, focus. You know, there's a couple things. One, it's still early days. I think with smaller companies, it, it can be more difficult to really measure uh, the full impact because uh, they just don't have the resources that larger companies do. Um, and I think it's important to note that, you know, as lenders, we can only have so much influence on ESG, especially if you're focused on sponsored transactions. I mean, it really needs to come from the sponsors first to, to internally in these companies uh, create a focus and an a ESG theme and make sure that the methodology is there to track KPIs, um, especially with smaller companies, and dedicate resources to it. And obviously, our view is, you know, the costs associated with that, we can help with that cost by providing ratcheted deals. Um, so we try to do everything we can to to encourage it, um, but uh, you know the more that private equity gets involved in this, and the more we can work together uh, with with companies and really focus on this important theme, I think you know then you'll see probably a more meaningful impact. But in North America, it's clearly early days compared to some of the other markets out there in terms of its development. Mm-hmm. Early days, but I think you and the team were, as you kind of alluded to, were were early movers in terms of you know actually structuring deals that had ESG ratchets in them. And obviously, I think we were early movers, if not the first um, mover in Europe as well. So, Adam, tell me about the the picture in Europe. How how maybe that you would contrast that or compare that to what Ian just uh, discussed about North America? Yes, I think so. Certainly, developed more. Um, in Europe than they have in the US in relation to ESG. I mean, we offer ESG ratchets to our borrowers on every transaction that we do now. 
I mean, this space continues to develop and evolve at quite a fast rate. So I think the important thing now is around sort of data gathering, reporting back to the investors and engaging with management teams around what they're actually doing on a number of these things we're trying to implement into the loans we have. But to Ian's point, we're a lender, we're not the owner of a business. A lot of these companies are relatively small and there is a cost involved in doing this. So I think we are continuing to push ahead with a lot of this sort of stuff in Europe. Um, and you know, our European investor base is very, very, very focused on, on a lot of these issues. I think quite different to the, to the landscape in, in, in North America. Yep. Yeah. Well, that will be along with a lot of the other things that we talked about today. I think that'll be an interesting area of the market to follow and to watch it uh, develop um, in the years ahead. Well, gentlemen, we have covered a lot of ground in this discussion and I appreciate your time. Uh, it is time to land this ship. So I want to uh, just finish it out and get a sense on kind of your level of optimism or pessimism uh, kind of uh, going forward. And also, as we mentioned up front, uh, both of you have seen a couple of cycles uh, in your career. So I'm curious, as you look ahead and you say, okay, what are some of the biggest challenges and opportunities ahead for this asset class? I mean, what do you think about the picture going forward overall? And if it's if you're more optimistic or pessimistic, Ian, I'll, I'll, I'll come to you with that one first. Well, I have to say first as lenders, you don't want your lenders to be too optimistic and too excited. Um, you want us to be focused on the downside. And so that's that's the way we live our lives, at least uh, professionally. So uh, boring is beautiful. But look, I, I think, again, I said it, I think we have to prepare for the worst um, and hope for the best. Every recession is different other than there's a beginning and an end. It's very hard to predict who gets hit the hardest during the middle of the of a recession and so i think all you can do is you know have a playbook and and start being proactive in terms of managing your portfolio and that's what we're we're doing i will say that uh again when investors see how this asset class performs through a cycle a real cycle i think that's just going to be a watershed moment for the for the asset class and so i'm very optimistic uh, in terms of the asset class going forward as it relates to institutional investors. Adam, I will give you the final word, optimistic or pessimistic and why? Look, I, I agree with my learned friend, Mr. Fowler. I, I think we, in the short term, will probably have some some difficult situations to manage as an asset class, but I think the long-term structural trend here is pretty positive. I think you're going to see uh, investors allocating more to the asset class. You're going to see uh, people continue to scale uh, and I think you're going to see those that are successful, you know, grow and take market share. And I, and I think it's a bit of a, Ian used the term, watershed moment where we're going through, I think, a period of consolidation and growth in this asset class, which uh, from an investor's perspective, I think will will, will turn out to be a, a pretty positive development. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I can tell you from, you know, from my point of view, it's been really fascinating to watch the development of this asset class over the last decade or so, um, to watch your team uh, investing through uh, different market uh, environments. And, and, you know, I, I 
take what you say and given your experience, I take it very seriously. And I think it's a, it's a really informed opinion. Uh, and I hope our listeners, uh, you know, get as much value from this conversation as, as I have uh, today, because I think it's just uh, really great to get your perspective. So let's do it again. Uh, I'd like to get you back here sometime over the next year or so to, to kind of check in on, on how things are going. But uh, this has been really great. I appreciate uh, both your time and uh, hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for listening to episode number four of season eight of Streaming Income. If you'd like to stay up to date on our latest thoughts on asset classes ranging from high yield and private credit to real estate and emerging markets, make sure to follow us and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and more. We publish a new episode every other week. And if you have specific feedback, you can email us at podcast at bearings.com. That's podcast at B-A-R-I-N-G-S dot com. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.